ladies and gentlemen and other, uh, welcome to the very first episode of Well Adjusted. Uh, I'm Jonathan Williams. I'm here with my very handsome co-host, Levi Horn. Hello, everyone. Levi and I have been meaning to do a, uh, a podcast about horror movies, horror fiction, horror whatever for the longest time, but we didn't because... Pandemic. Oh, God. End of the world. <laughs> and also, we're basically fundamentally lazy people. It, true. Yeah. <laughs> Hard truths. But we're here now, and we're very excited to be, to be beginning this with a forgotten gem. That's right. The classic film... It's Alive. It's Alive by Mr. Larry Cohen. Um, and for those of you who are completely unfamiliar with it, as, well, probably everyone, but um, this movie's claim to fame, I don't know, how are you going to summarize this? What's the elevator pitch for It's Alive? Um, a a uh, happy couple has a pregnancy, and when um, her, I guess, water breaks and they go to the hospital... Uh, they find out that what has been growing inside of her is, in fact, a terrible flesh-eating monster and not an innocent child. Well, it's actually an innocent flesh-eating monster. Well, I guess, yes, it is innocent. That's, yeah, that's, that's the, the thing point. about... That's the point, yeah. That's the thing about innocence, mm-hmm. is that innocence is horrible. Yes. Because innocence is the absence of any knowledge of good or evil. And, yeah, I mean, the thing is obviously too young to have any knowledge of good or sure, evil. Sure, which is it's, why all small children are basically psychopaths. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I'll bring this up right now. Um, in Stephen King's um, uh, book, Dance Macabre, which is about the, the horror which genre. Which, from, from now on, we will refer to as uh, our podcast Bible. Yeah, the, the podcast Bible, The Dance Macabre by, uh, by Stephen King, uh, which is a book that he wrote uh, strictly about the horror genre in general. Um, One of his few works of nonfiction. So yeah, I'm going to quote that. uh, We weren't actually as happy as we remember when we were children. We were just insane. That is a quote from Stephen King's book, Dance Macabre. So that has to do with uh, children don't know any better. And so I guess this child is basically just going off instinct or this monster. um, And I guess it is a child. It's a, it's a, it's a baby monster. Sure. Um, it's just feeding off instinct and survivability, which, you know, is the basis of our own existence here on Earth. So, and if you're born, I mean, you know, when you're born with, uh, well, teeth and claws, massive I mean, claws. I mean, like, like teeth, teeth, like fangs and, and massive claws and super strength, and you're cranky because you've just been evicted from a very nice place. I feel like killing everybody in the, uh, the OR is really the, I mean, what else are you going to do? That's how you do it. I mean, they, they do not want this thing alive from the second it is born. And uh, the, the, the baby is uh, absolutely terrified and scared, and that's when it attacks. Um, As you do. In a very gory way. Like, I, so I, I've seen this. I mean, uh, this has been one of my favorite movies. I played this movie in the delivery room when my <laughs> most recent daughter was being born awesome <laughs> i got i got about seven and a half minutes into it until my wife made me turn it off oh wow yeah <laughs> but that was a good seven and a half minutes yes. but so i've seen this like over and over and over again but you recently watched it for the very first time very first time and then i re-watched it to get ready for the for this episode of our of our podcast 
But I want to ask you about the birth scene. As somebody who who recently saw yeah. that for the very first time, yeah, you know everything's normal. They got the they they're, they're taking the wife mm-hmm. in there. She she wakes up in the middle of the night with the yeah. usual labor pains. The husband's excited. They already have one kid. Picking out their outfits that he's going to wear in the waiting room. You know, with all the other gentlemen. Oh the god, that was so great. The waiting room <laughs> yeah. before we all insisted on bringing the useless third wheel of husbands into the delivery room. You know, the guys would sit there in the waiting room and they would pass a flask around and smoke cigarettes, which is, of course, the civilized way to have a baby. Yes. And it's also, uh, uh, hey, uh, gentlemen, you guys have fun. Uh, Your wife is going to be in the (laughs) most pain she's ever been in her life. She's in there screaming her head off, but you guys chill. You might as well pass the scotch around. Yeah. And they're they're handing out each other's business cards. It's like networking. Yeah. Yeah. They're, They're getting to know each other. Yeah, it's almost like that scene from uh, American Psycho with the business cards <laughs> that just made me think of that. I know that's not that's not hundred percent accurate, but but it's all it's all looking fine. You know, they, they go to the hospital. The there's no indication there's anything wrong with the baby. Husbands are in the waiting room. The, you know, the wife is back there in the uh, the delivery theater, whatever you call it. Mm-hmm. So, what I wanted to ask you though, mm-hmm. tell me about the first time you saw that birth scene. Yeah, oh yeah. Um, so <laughs> I actually. Um, don't do hospitals well. Um, I don't do, um, I, I don't know how to describe it. I um, went with a friend to uh, be with uh, her sister while her sister was about to have her baby. And we walked in and, and uh, the doctor was in there describing like what's immediately about to happen. And I left the room because I was almost going to fall over and pass out. <laughs> um so it was really hard for me to watch that scene because I don't know. There's just something about gowns and tourniquets and the spread eagle stirrup mm. things that just bother me. Like, and the very, um, the very smug uh, information withholding. Don't worry about it. Just trust us. Attitude. Yeah. Of of the of the medical staff, which Always. I think is just as bad now as it was then. Yeah. No. It's and, and that that's the terrifying part is hey, like your wife's not doing too hot. There's nothing you can do about it. We're gonna tell you anyway, and then hop back in there. Like, I mean, I understand they're trying to be transparent. I guess. But no, I think it's the opposite of transparency. They're trying to move it along. Yeah. I mean, they're trying to, you know, they're trying to, you know, they're just trying to get it done. Yeah. And they don't really feel like you need to know much. You might as well be, it's like you called somebody to fix your dryer. Yes. The guy doesn't talk to the dryer. No. He just fixes the dryer. And talks, yeah, and lets you know. Yeah, and then when it's done, he might tell you what happened, which is fine yeah. if it's a dryer, but, you know, when there's um, a, a human being tearing its way out of you, that's... That's not good. I feel like that's less okay. Yeah. And, and, and it was a bloody mess, man. Like, I didn't expect... I guess I just didn't expect them to show that part. Like, I, I don't know why. Um, and it's not like the blood is, like, overwhelmingly real looking. You know, it looks like, like pig's blood or corn syrup. Um, and, it, and it's actually... I mean, it's pretty restrained because... In the actual scene, you don't see the carnage. You see the aftermath. Yes, you do not. Which is one of the reasons this is such a great classic old school monster movie. And and, and yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna reference Jaws uh, probably more than once in this. Um, it has that feeling of Jaws where you don't necessarily see the attack. You see what happens before and the aftermath of said attack. Um, 
which I think is a great, I mean, I know for like Stephen King and Jaws, or not Stephen King, uh, Steven Spielberg and Jaws, uh, they had no other choice. And, and possibly, I do believe that was the case in this film. They had no other choice but to barely show it because the, the costume he made, he used his wife as, as the, the model for it because he needed someone 24-7 who was willing to help. And or it just, or and it, unwilling and easy or, to oh, manipulate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it just didn't look right as a full costume. And you'll see, there, there's certain points in this film where they actually do show the full costume, and it's, it looks like a rubber suit. Like, it's absolutely terrible. And then there are parts where they barely show the monster, and it looks great. Uh, like the scene in the tunnel where the lights are going off. Yeah, well, they use that, I mean, the way that classic, classic monster movies used to before everybody started to abuse CGI, it's that if the costume isn't super low quality, well, you just, you play with that by keeping the lights low. It's a mm-hmm. monster movie. Yeah, you're yeah. Gonna, you know, you're going to have darkness anyway. Yeah, it's dark and stormy and moody anyway. Um. But about that, that birthing scene, you know, for, for people who don't know, uh, Levi, you don't have any kids yet that we know of. No, I have a dog, and he is my firstborn son. And then I have five children because uh, birth control is really hard to figure out. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I've been in the, you know, I've been in the delivery room because now they insist on dragging the husband in there so he can stand there like a, a useless third wheel um, while the baby's being born. So I've actually been in the delivery room quite a few times, and what I instantly loved about this movie is that um it, you know it's kind of horrible regardless of whether or not the kid has fangs yes i mean it's terrifying regardless of whether or not the baby comes out and tries to to murder most of the um the hospital staff yes and I went, who hasn't wanted to do that i mean I, yes i can't speak because <laughs> i've never been in that situation i've seen it on film it's horrible, <laughs> it's horrible. The, the, what i love about uh, one of the things i love about this movie is it's an antidote to the whole miracle of birth yeah silliness that that people talk about it's like have you seen a baby being born it will scar you for the rest of your life it's a horror movie it's and and this is just from what i've heard like obviously never seen it and i don't know like if if and we'll get back into this in a we'll get into this in a in a little bit um like like my girlfriend and i don't know if we want to have kids so i don't know if i'll ever have to experience that but like if I did, I'd be the, the dad that waited in the waiting room the entire time. I didn't put scrubs on. I didn't go, like, I couldn't do it. They don't make you put scrubs on. Oh, they don't uh, unless, it's, unless it's like a cesarean. Oh, unless, okay. unless something goes wrong. Yeah, okay. No scrubs. Okay. You, you, you'll just, um, you're just standing there in your regular clothes. They do make you sit down. Okay. Because they don't trust you not to faint. Yeah, that, that's a good uh, assumption. Uh, I would end up in the bed next to her probably with IVs and everything because I had such a bad reaction to <laughs> My it. My strategy was uh, I just stayed way up by the head of the bed because mm-hmm. so I, I, I didn't want to see. Any, no, you can't. Your yeah. business is just, you know. But you're still there for her, you know, which is great. Yeah, sure. Yeah. You, you do the only thing that you're good for, which is nothing. But, you know, you hold her hand mm-hmm. and you say, you're doing fine, honey. Yeah. Even and, though you have no idea whether she is doing fine. And she's breaking your wrist. At the yes. Same time. And she's yeah. breaking all the, the fine bones in your hand. Yeah. And of course, I, you know, I don't want to suggest uh, in the case, the, the very uh, unlikely event that a woman listens to our podcast. I don't want to suggest that like the husband standing there has the worst time because oh, that, God, that's no. obviously not true. It's like, yeah. you know, the, the, it's, it's the lady who is, is having, you know, this sort of uh, slash miracle slash existential traumatic yeah. event. Um, I don't have words for it. Thank God I'll never know what that end of it feels like. I, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, and no, like 
no disrespect. I mean, I absolutely respect every mother for going. I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they do it. I have a low tolerance for pain. So they would like, I don't know how they do it. I really don't. And then you have more after you've had that one terrible, painful experience. You have more. I have a theory about that. Here's the thing is that, um, you know, as soon as that's over, everybody says the same thing. We're never doing this again. Yeah. <laughs> right. We can, right. We, we can scratch this off the bucket list. We're going to, we're going to love the little critter fangs and all, but we're never doing this again. And then, you know, a huge number of people, uh, like a year later, yeah. do it again. Or in my case, all, all, yeah. more than, more than just, just one more. One, yeah. And it's, and it's because nature is horrible and tricks us into forgetting. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's like the, uh, the sole reason the human uh, species has survived is because we can't stay off of each other. <laughs> like, um, thanks nature. Yeah. Thank you. Nature for that. Um, <laughs> by the way, anyway, so uh, let's jump like, so it's alive. Uh, we, we gave you the premise, uh, the father's name is Frank. And so we're going to try to refer to him as Frank. Most of the most of uh, the this episode, he's played by uh, John P. Ryan, who does a fantastic, fantastic job. job, and has his own just terribly tragic story. And cannot believe that I have not seen this guy in anything else. Like went on IMDb while watching it because I was early on uh, impressed with his performance. So I, I was like, man, I know I've seen this guy somewhere. Had to have seen him in something. Nothing. Uh, I, I mean, it's it's. It's stuff I've never heard of or stuff I've never seen. Um, and the guy's performance is really good. His like... It, it pretty much carries the movie. It does. Like, because you, you're not seeing the creature that much. You don't care about the victims who are being killed. I mean, it's the, the damn milkman for one, you know, one, one of the scenes. Nobody has any sympathy for the milkman. Sorry, and certainly milkman. nobody has yeah. any sympathy for the hospital staff. I mean, they're getting paid too much. Yeah, anyway. yeah, yeah. No kidding. And, and milkmen don't even exist these days, so... Um, but he does, he is the sole like driver of the plot. You learn early on that he does, he's not handling this really well at all. Uh, <laughs> Although, in his defense, I mean, so in, in the movie, he and his wife already have a, a normal son who's like eight, nine. Yeah, and I, I believe his name is Chris. Yeah, Chris. But, you know, he's a perfectly well-adjusted boy, and they're good parents. Yeah. By all accounts in the movie, they're good parents. And then, yeah. the, and then the monster baby comes along, and the father's not really having it. No, the mother, it, interestingly, I mean, she's in the movie, but she's not much of a presence because she's so uh, just shocked. Yeah, like, sort of psychologically broken, you know, by, mm-hmm. by having Like a, PTSD a from this, you know. Um, she, they keep her in bed. They keep her medicated. Um, they keep nurses in the house who end up actually being reporters because they, they just want to get the story of the parents who created this monster. Um, but yeah, she's really not in it that much. I mean, she does, for what they give her, she does a great job. But her, her job essentially as an, as an actor is to just be distraught a whole lot. Um, so the, the, the guy playing the father winds up carrying most of it. And he, um, I think he would have had a long career, but he died, what, in a helicopter accident, right? Yes, yeah. Like, in the, right as he is, his star was sort of ascending that actor. Yeah, like, so he, I don't know, I don't think this was his last film, but it was close. Um, and maybe we look that up here in a second, but 
Uh, by the way, the the mother's name uh, is Lenore, and um, she is played by Sharon Farrell, um, who is a is a pretty recognizable actress. Um, she's been in in a few things. Um, there's a line I want to touch on here because we're we're gonna um, we're gonna touch on this um, philosophical school of thought here in a minute, and what this film. Uh, uh, deals with socially and, and, and philosophically. Uh, there's a line, and I think it's, it's said by a police officer. It might be like the sheriff. But he tells one of the doctors that's interested in studying the baby, um, you're lucky you don't have grown kids. People without children don't know how lucky they are, end quote. <laughs> Which is, yeah, it's, that's a super um, uh, positive sounding thing to say, but, and that got me. And so we looked this up, but there's a, there's a whole philosophical school of thought called antinatalism, which suggests that not only should you not have children, but that doing so is actually like wrong, immoral, immoral, like, yeah, yeah, ethically and morally wrong. And, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to read a couple of, uh, little, uh, synopses of this, um, summaries of this particular theory that I just scraped off Wikipedia because that's as close as I get to being an intellectual. Um, So antinatalists argue that people should abstain from procreation because it is morally bad. Um, And many also recognize that the simple fact of procreation of other sentient beings is morally bad because to be sentient is to suffer, essentially. There's no way around Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. So basically the, the, uh, the objection is, is that, you know, you, you have a child you have no idea what's going to happen to that child except for the fact that it's guaranteed to suffer. Like, no matter what. It's, it's a dark thought, guys. Like, it's a, it's a, it's a dark um, uh, way to look at life. And, and, and honestly, for me, it's, it's sort of, and this is going to get personal, I guess, but it's sort of like what me and my significant other believe when it comes to having children with overpopulation and all the crap that goes on out there. And it's almost like, and like, I'm not going to, cause Jonathan sitting right next to me has five children. Um, I mean, there's no proof they're mine. There's no I proof. Uh, absolutely none. Um, but it's, it's like, sometimes I, I have, I've had this thought that having children is almost selfish because like the only reason I find myself wanting a child is so that I can, teach it things almost to be more like me. Like I would want a little me running around, you know, like, Hey, sit down and you're going to watch star Wars. Hey, sit down and daddy's going to read Lovecraft to you while you fall asleep. You know, like, and it's, I find that to be a selfish reason for me wanting kids. Does that make sense? Oh no, it, it, it it totally makes sense. And I actually think it's a, it's a pretty valid argument. I mean, there's the, I'm not, I don't have a lot of sympathy for the argument that's like, well, the, the planet's overpopulated or environmental destruction. Those things are true. Mm-hmm. It's just that they tend to ignore what happens if you suddenly decide that kids aren't going to be, th- be a thing in the future. Yeah, well, then we don't have a... You don't have a future. We don't have a future as a species. Yeah, yeah exactly. there's, a, there's, right, exactly. there's a line... Um, so yeah, thank God not everyone believes this, <laughs> you know? There's a line, I can't remember, I think it was some, a science fiction writer whose name escapes me. But uh, his argument was that real futurists have children. Yeah. You know, if you're interested in, in yeah, know, it's sort of a, an overly simplistic thing to say and obvious, but in the absence of kids, there, there is no future. Yeah. The, the human experiment is just over. Yes. But I still find this argument um, compelling in some ways, this antinatalism argument. And 
What I like about this movie is it's you know is that 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 argument is part of this, even though this movie's what thirty years old. More? Yeah, I think it was seventy. I think it was seventy-one. So it or hold on, let me look that up because I think and I had that question: Did it come out before Jaws? Because it does the um, it does the hide the monster. We don't have enough money to to uh, to show the monster kind of thing. Uh, it nineteen seventy-four. Okay, so geez, that's almost fifty. Yeah, so God, uh, I'm old. So, so let's see. And Jaws was seventy five. So yeah, this absolutely was released before Jaws, which is insane to me. And so you know, there even then people were uh, overpopulation. And, and and spoiler alert, but you know, it turns out that the the thing in the movie that causes the the little monster baby to be born is essentially um, um, a side effect from drugs and pollution. Pharm- right. Yeah, pharmaceuticals. Pharmaceuticals um, and pollution is sort of suggested as a thing. And, mm-hmm. But, you know, even back then, people were sort of worried about the state of the world and bringing a baby into it. And now... Oh, now look at it. And, it's, and, and it's now a thousand look at, times worse. Well, and, and with the pharmaceuticals, I mean, how many of us are on anti-anxiety, anti-depression, uh, Xanax, Clodipin, all this stuff, um, you know, it's a, it's a real... Uh, paranoia <laughs> because there's so many people that are di- that are uh, diagnosed and prescribed prescription drugs drugs and there is no foreseeable future where they will cut themselves off from it um, oh no and if you do cut yourself off a lot of those medicines you're, you're in trouble a real bad time yeah at least for a little while yeah i've actually been told by a doctor that you don't cold turkey uh, an antidepressant nope. once you're on it you're on it you know and there's nothing wrong I guess with being on it for the rest of your life but there is that paranoia there like is it turning my brain into mush uh, kind of thing so who yeah so is it is it a valid is you know how could bringing children into the world just so you can load them up on Xanax and um, Lexapro <laughs> yeah. for the rest of their lives <laughs> and then they'll have monster children be an children. ultimately moral decision so no I'm, I'm sensitive to the argument I just don't think there's a again there's no solution for it. There's no future no. without kids. And, yeah. and even one of the things that uh, I think that environmental argument against having children misses is, you know, what happens to all human systems, even if you just cut the birth rate in half. It's like your well, you, economies just collapse. Yeah. Even if you just do the Thanos snap. <laughs> um, Good old Thanos. The, the economies collapse. Yeah. Um, it's almost like, and this movie really brought it forward for me. It's almost like we're, and we're going to get into this too, we're too smart for our own good as a species. Um, we do nothing but create destruction. Um, even down to the fact of our children are going to end up just being consumers, <laughs> you know, and, and, and adding to the destruction. Um, Here's a, a, another quote from our uh, brief Wikipedia research that sort of speaks to that. So there's a, a philosopher named Peter Wessel Zapf. Am I saying that right? I, I, I believe that's right. Looks right. Looks right. Anyway, it says that he viewed uh, humans as a biological paradox. According to him, consciousness has become over-evolved in humans, thereby making us incapable of functioning normally like other animals. Cognition mm-hmm. gives us more than we can carry. That's a good line. Yeah. Uh, and I like the animal thing. It's, it's, it's like, to me, it's the sole reason, like, Animals are scared, inherently scared of humans. Like we're too, like there's for so long evolution has led us to, we're the killers, you know, like we're the destroyers. We'll destroy the plants and the animals. You know, it's, it's an interesting thought, the biological paradox. 
and then that we've over-evolved, you know, consciousness has become over-evolved in humans. At least that, that one facet of our yeah. abilities mm-hmm. is sort of, our, what's, what's the saying? Our um, reach, our reach exceeds our grasp? And yes, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I went to college. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and it goes on to say that our frailness and insignificance in the cosmos are visible to us. So that's, that, and that's kind of like a Lovecraft thought. Um, we're nothing in this um, huge vastness of space. Anyway, we're getting a little off topic here. Well, not really, because that that brings us to another central question about mm -hmm. this movie. And that is, is Frank, is the father in this movie a bad father? I guess we have to explain a little bit about what happens. Yeah, so... um, So the baby's born, um, unexpectedly is a monster, uh, pretty much wipes out the entire delivery room staff, and then escapes. Nobody knows where it is, and obviously there's this huge hunt for it. Um, and the father's reaction is just to instantly disavow it. Mm-hmm. Um, what, whatever sort of freak thing just happened isn't my fault, it's not my wife's fault, it's not part of our family. Yeah, like, and, and the doctors, well, he's talking to the doctors in one scene, and, and one of them, or one of the research doctors who wants to take the, the, the monster and research it, uh, the, the doctor says to him, yes, disassociate yourself emotionally. <laughs> like, because that's exactly what he's doing throughout the, the film. You see, like, the thousand-yard stare with a full glass of scotch in his hands. You know, he's trying to basically be like, this is not my flesh and blood. You know, this is just some monster. And it's what he's, like, literally telling himself that. Basically. Yeah, and so, I mean, his approach at the beginning is just... Catch it, kill it. Kill it, yeah. I, we, I want my family to get back to, to normal, essentially. Yeah. I mean, he loses his job because people find out... Yeah, that he's the father, that of, he's the, the, father of, of the monster of baby in the papers. Flesh-eating monster, yeah. Like, um, so, of course, he wants to disassociate with it. Um, but then, of course, yeah. over time, you know, the movie goes on, and by the end, he completely reverses it. And by the end, he's the only person trying to save it. Such a good scene. Um, the they they chase it into the sewers <laughs> and there's cop cars and strobe lights and and they use it really well um and then the father kind of walks off by himself and you know he's gonna find it like yeah all these cops are in the sewers there there are tons of police officers you were mentioning the blues brothers earlier yeah because it's almost comical and how many scenes that you know there's like a hundred cops they don't really have anything to do no they're but they're there they're they're terrible and there's so many of them like trying to get through this one uh, pipe in the sewer and they're overflowing it. And it reminded me of the cop scenes in blues brothers where it's just ridiculous amount of cops and they're, they're loud vehicles. Um, but yeah, so, so they have two kids and uh, Frank, the dad relies on the fact that his first child is healthy and intelligent uh, to justify that this monster isn't his, you know, he's telling the researchers, I have a healthy kid. There's no way this is mine, you know? Um, and then the, uh, later the wife asked, should we bring Chris, their first child back home? Because they dumped him off with their uncle when this happened. Um, solid move kind of selfishly. Yeah. It felt, it felt like, Oh, we can't have you around when this is going on, blah, blah, blah. Um, so the, the, the wife um, asks, uh, should we bring uh, Chris, the first child, back home? And to which the father replies, he's better off where he is, implying that he doesn't give a damn. Like, is he a bad father? Like, is this all about him? Like, that's what I felt like while I'm watching it is he's made this about him. 
you know. Well, there are two things here that, as somebody who had kids, that I thought was interesting. Number one is that um, there's this popular conception that when a baby is born, both parents immediately have this flip. I'm sorry, the switch. Yeah. The switch flipped and are filled with life, this, this overwhelming sort of celestial, other, otherworldly love. And grace, yes, and, and hope. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and that happens a lot of times. Yeah. But every now and again, it's not instant. No, and... Because I, I remember this when my, my first one was born. Mm-hmm. I was so freaked out, and I was doing my best to be responsible, mm-hmm. and I was doing everything I was supposed to do. But I remember, like, you know, holding her while my wife was recuperating and being like, okay, where's the thing? Yeah, where's, where's the the child? Where's where, where's the light from heaven? <laughs> yeah, because right now I just want to shit my pants. Yeah, um, yeah. There's a I've read I've I've studied this. Um, I, I say study. I've read this. Um, there's a theory that the child is born looking more like the father than the mother, because it's an evolutionary thing, so that the the father won't leave the cave. <laughs> Once it's born. Father's like, look, I'm, I'm going across the river. There's a redhead in the cave over there. Like, so I just think I, yeah, that might work out better. So like the, yeah, exactly. So like the, the, the school of thought is, okay, if the child looks like me, I won't leave it. And of course the mother doesn't have that because it came out of her body. She, you know, she doesn't have to have it look like her, I guess. It's, this is a strictly like evolutionary thing. Apparently it's really interesting that that men have to have the, the child look like them in order to not just want to run. <laughs> but I think there are oftentimes, and I don't know if it's, I, I think it's probably less common for women than it is for men, but I think yeah. there, are, there are times where you sort of, you grow into it a little bit. Like it, it's, you know, there's, there's just so much to do uh, when the baby's first born and it's uh-huh. so sudden. And for those of us who weren't prepared to have kids, I mean, who is, but for yeah. those of us who maybe weren't expecting to, mm-hmm. Um, you just feel like you're running from, you know, one little fire to another to make sure that everybody has everything they need. And there's not a lot of time for sleep or sleep, or, <laughs> but there's not a lot of time to really sort of even understand what you're feeling. Yeah. And so sometimes it's like, I mean, I remember for me, it was like three, four months later. Yeah. You're like, holy shit, I'm a father. Yeah. 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 You, you know, I, I go to pick up the baby in the middle of the night and there it was. It's yeah. Like, oh, that's how you, oh, that's, that's really interesting. Uh, that's crazy. But, you know, in the meantime, you just do what you're supposed to do. Yeah. And, 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 and even there's the, the whole uh, postpartum depression. Yeah. Uh, which for, for women. Women you know? is hell. Oh, man. That's got to be real. And it's equally awful because, it's, it's, you know, for, for women, it's not, just the, the, it's not just the horrible nature of postpartum depression itself. But, you know, a lot of them also have this horrible guilt. Because if anybody is supposed to have that immediate light from heaven love for the baby... It's the mother. It's the mother. Yeah, that's kind of like what I was going into there was like, it's almost expected. Yeah, for, for women it is. And if you don't have it, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of women, if they, whether it's postpartum depression or something else, you know, they have that tremendous amount of sort of cultural baggage and, and guilt that they've got to drag around as well. Yeah, that's a... And, I th- you know, I think that's all sort of in here. Yes. And the other thing I wanted to bring up is, um, you know, this um, biological concept of uh, xenogenesis, where every now and again... You know, you have two parents, uh, and the offspring is simply nothing like either of them. Yeah, I, and I know people like that. Um, you know, they look nothing like their parents, and they—it's almost like you know, there's jo- like I literally have friends where there's jokes that they're adopted. You know, and like, I mean, I know that's freaking terrible, but yeah, but it's it's kind of funny. In- it's it, yeah, it's interesting. You know, like 
that does happen or or you'll have a brother and sister that look and act nothing alike but they both came from the same genes you know parents or, or even just even uh, looks aside i mean you know you think about you have two um normal law abiding parents who both seem to be completely psychologically normal and you know their kid's a serial killer or yeah. the, the kid is a school shooter yeah um and so the, the the other thing about I think the other thing that this movie taps into I think is just that terror of you know what if we do everything right as parents yeah <laughs> and we and we have a monster either of course not literally but in the real world real yeah. world figuratively some something that's completely unlike us I mean I kind of got a Rosemary's Baby the Omen vibe from this film this movie was. This movie was compared unfavorably to Rosemary's Baby. It was, it was called like a, a cheap knockoff of Rosemary's Baby when it came out, which is another point I wanted to bring up, and that this movie did not get half a chance no. when it was first released. No. Um, it was it released say, to one theater. Yeah, and then it had to get re-released. Yeah, and then it was thrown in a closet because I guess there was a, an executive changeover at yeah. the, the studio, and mm-hmm. they, they didn't have any faith in it despite the fact that it was done. And then three years later, yeah. Uh, Larry Cohen convinced them to do it again, yeah. to release it again. And when they released it, they um, did a new ad campaign. And it's one of the most famous ad campaigns in the history of movies in terms of being so successful. But if you look up the trailer for it or the ad campaign for yeah. it, it's got this great line. You hear like a, a carriage and like a, a baby cooing or whatever. And the voiceover is, there's only one thing wrong with the Davis baby. <laughs> It's a lie. It's so good. And the that, poster's really the, the good. The poster and that ad campaign, they re-released it, and it made up just a ton of money. Yeah. And that's the only reason we know about it today. I didn't, I, I didn't even know about it. As like someone who has obsessed over the horror genre over the last couple of years, I mean, forgive me, guys, but I didn't discover Lovecraft until about four or five years ago, and then everything went from there. I had never heard of this movie. I, I've, I, I think I might have... Rem- I think I remember someone talking about it on a horror movie documentary, possibly. But no, I'd, I'd never seen the poster. I didn't know who the actors were. I didn't know that Larry Cohen directed it until Jonathan mentioned it. And now here we are. And that's, that's the great thing about two horror nerds uh, getting together is we fill in the gaps. Yeah. <laughs> In our, uh, our, our videography. Yeah. Yeah. And, and our, our, our literature as well. Um, so yeah, let's, uh, I want to talk about the use of POV in this movie, uh, which was really neat to me because I remember seeing Jaws as a kid and some of the most terrifying scenes are when you're in Jaws's head. Like you see it from his perspective. Oh yeah. You're coming up under the. The, the, what's one of the first ones, you know, the, the single lady swimming and the um, best scene in the movie, I think when she's alone. Yeah. Um, and then you're just seeing her legs, is the opening freaking scene. Like, um, and yeah, when you get that POV, you know, it's coming like, and it's just brilliantly done. Um, it's used really well in this film. It's almost kind of comical though, because he has like fly vision like everything's yeah the the monster infant's vision is not human vision human yeah vision. and so it 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 reminded me of another iconic uh pov monster movie predator where and i honestly like everyone knows the heat sense 
you know, the, the heat vision that Predator uses. Uh, it, it reminded me of that, where it's a different uh, lens for the monster's vision. Um, have, you, have you ever seen Basket Case? No. Oh my God! We're gonna do an episode. About okay, that. we'll do that. that that's, that's that's got a little. What is Dwayne hiding uh, in the basket? That's got some some great. Yeah. Okay. POV in it. Oh, oh, I'm excited about that because, well, it's just I'm really interested in in the history of of horror cinema, and so this I found out that the first POV ever used in horror was in 1960, Peeping Tom, directed by Michael Powell. Um, that was the first. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, um, and there's other POV like you have the POV of the victim in a lot of things, especially in these found footage movies like Blair Witch, uh, which is probably the most famous found footage POV horror movie, um, like because it's just all POV. Um, and so you know, of course, there's a lot of trends of more found footage movies, blah blah blah. But Jaws, Evil Dead, and of course Halloween also used POV from. The monster's perspective. The original Friday the 13th, too. Yes. I'm sorry. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The original one. Yeah. Um, and I remember, like, I remember the, the Michael Myers as a kid scene where you literally watch him pick up the knife as a child and then Ugh. walk into his sister's room. Yeah, like, it's a really... The way she says that, Michael? Yeah, it's a really um, effective trick in, that film filmmakers use in horror. And I really enjoyed it in this film. I just thought it was really neat because to, number one, to find out that this came out before jaws and then it feels like jaws. And, and again, because they don't show it a lot. You, it's, it's left up to your imagination. I mean, when they do show it, it's kind of comical at first, but then you realize, Oh, this is, if this was real, it'd be terrifying because it has like three fingers with huge claws, like, like nightcrawler from X-Men. And then it, and it has like vampire teeth and it's, they designed it off of, um, I read this, they designed it off of the star child from 2001 and a wolf. So they wanted to like put the two together. That's I what, did not know that. That's why he has the veins in his head and his eyes are a okay. little bulgy. Yeah. Because it's, it's based off of the design for it was based off star child from 2001 space, space odyssey, which was interesting. So yeah. Um, uh, POV and horror that'll go into voyeurism you know a lot of people and I guess part of the reason I get so freaked out when you, you get the, the POV of the monster is you're in its head and there's that voyeurism that's in Halloween you know um, even when he's under the sheet and has the glasses and you see the like to like naked teenager or whatever it's voyeurism like we're scared to experience it truly but we want to see it you know well yeah we're scared to admit that we want to see it yeah like we want to see the milkman's juggler get ripped feel, out feel by a this guilty this about little it, but, kid but yeah, i'm watching yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh which by the way was probably my favorite scene in this movie the 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 milkman pulls up and you get baby vision of him like crawling through the bushes to get in the milk truck and as soon as the, the milkman gets to close the door to the milk truck, he drags him in. And they just show blood and milk just spewing out of the back of the and van. Then there's, <laughs> and then there's the monster baby crying. Over the spilt milk. Over spilt yeah, milk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, and, and, and they use that later. Like when the dad finds out that the, that the mother has been like keeping it there. Spoiler alert. Um, yeah, so the, you know, the, the dad is determined to sort of turn it. He just wants it turned over to the authorities and, and all gone. But the baby, of course, like most animals, uh, has an instinct to find its mother. 
um, who it does not harm in any way in that that, no. that yeah. opening birth scene. She's the only one that lives, but it, of course has its instinct to find its mother. So it comes home, you know, through its its monster GPS, it finds the house, <laughs> yeah. and um, and so the mother is sort of secretly uh, keeping it in the basement and feeding it and all that good stuff. And dad doesn't really figure it out until what is it? He opens the fridge and it's just full of raw meat. <laughs> yeah, and and all the uh, the milk bottles are empty. There's like five milk bottles because they still use the milkman, of course. And uh, they do the whole like bottled glass bottled milk outside of the front door, and he grabs it. And later that night, he goes to grab some milk, and it's gone. <laughs> Yeah, and what I love about that, um, you know, the dad being completely oblivious to the fact that, you know, his wife is feeding this monster that he's disavowed is that it's always a rough, it's always a rough awakening for dads uh, when you realize that, you know, pretty much from the instant of conception, but, but certainly after the baby is born, you go from being number one in your lady's life to number two. Real fast. So fast. Real it's fast. just, yeah. oh, and of course... That has to happen. If that doesn't happen, you probably pick the wrong person to have children with. Yeah, that's... The, but it's still... It's, it smarts a little bit. Yeah, it's got to hurt. But at the same time, it's got to be kind of, I don't know, sexy because you... The whole mama bear thing? Well, yeah. Like, they 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 put something else in front of their own care. And now, now I know there are some people out there who, like totally don't find that attractive like once a woman becomes a mother she's no longer attractive uh but but that's you know it, i don't know maybe i don't know maybe that's part of it you know oh it it definitely is yeah i think um i mean i i think we certainly know culturally uh we still have a habit of kind of patronizing women and infantilizing women mm-hmm. but for me like once you see a woman become a mother you realize that, oh my God, I've just been playing in this sandbox the whole time. They're the real badasses. And then, yes. Yeah. The, the women are the real badasses, guys. And, and, <laughs> and uh, you know, here's the person who's actually dangerous yeah. under some circumstances. Yeah, yeah. I mean, here's the, again, the, the mama bear thing is, is yes. probably a bit of a cliche at this point, but that shit is true. It's very true. Yeah. Um, I mean, my mother ran our household, you know, um, that was her household. Um, so I grew up with a very strong mother person. I mean, she had two boys at the exact same time. I mean, oh, yes, yeah, right. You got a twin. Yeah, I have a twin. Yeah. So they were done having children right after that. Like that, <laughs> that was it. Like they sent dad to the hospital like a week after we were born, you know? And, and that's another thing is like that I, that I find uh, hilarious is like, yeah, if you don't want to have kids, you might want to just send the husband to the doctor and get him snip snipped real, real fast. Well, well even in my house, I mean, my wife and I wound up with this sort of accidentally traditional arrangement where I go and laughably try to make money. And then she does a great job of taking care of all the kids. But, you know, when I come home, uh, and once in a while, you know, one of the kids will say something like, uh, Dad, um, can I have another whatever? And I'll be like, sure. And then they're like, actually, I'd better ask mom. Yeah, because we know that you don't actually have any power here. Yeah, we know who's in charge. That was always we'll go ask dad first because he'll say yes. But we know that it has to absolutely go through mom. Like that's the executive order of everything we try to get away with. Um, And it's just funny because she's not in this film that much. Like, but but she does have that like she's going to care for this baby no matter what. Yeah, like. 
And yes. she doesn't give a damn if the husband's involved or not. It, like, t- like, it takes her a minute. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. the trauma, whatever, and they're yeah. doping her pretty heavy. Yeah, she's basically got PTSD, like we said. For a know. while, but as soon as the as soon as the monster baby makes its way home, she's immediately all in on yeah. on keeping Monster Baby alive. Like she has a look like she will kill you if you harm her child you know and, like, and then she's and it's like trying to bring the dad along in a slightly unhinged way yeah he's still like really obsessed with killing it <laughs> or or at least like giving it to the the doctors now what what's fun like why they have to kill it is, is interesting a farm these pharmaceutical suits you know walk up to the dad and tell him hey you know we can't kill this thing well we need to kill this thing because once people find out that it's a it's a side effect to our medication well then we're screwed but then they then they want to study the thing instead of killing it which is which is crazy which is why they like send the dad to do this and throughout the whole movie they're like you're you've got to be the one to do it you know and he takes it on himself to Either be the one to capture it or kill it. It's you a, know, it's a real uh, of mice and men twist. You know, you gotta, yeah. you gotta shoot your own dog. Yeah, and let somebody else. It's exactly what that is. But then at the end, his oh god, his performance. Uh, he has this change of thought at the very end, like when there's the big cop chase through the sewer thing is happening. Um, and of course, he finds the baby first. Yeah, uh, I mean, which, which is already wounded. Yes, it's already been shot by him, actually. We, we didn't really cover that. The dad found it in the basement, because we, like we were talking, the mother uh, was hiding it in the basement. And um, shot it. <laughs> or winged it, anyway. Oh, yeah, wounded it. Um, but it still, like, won't attack him, you know, because it's knows, it knows that that's his father, you know, or its father. And we never know if it's a, oh, yeah, we do, actually. They, the, the, the mother screams at him, it's a boy. Yeah. Yeah, because I was going to say, we never actually find out what sex it is. But it's, and like, like that's going to make the dad not want to kill it. You know, she screams at him, it's a boy, it's a boy. And then what is the father supposed to be like? Oh, well, if it's a boy, then, we're, <laughs> then damn, we're going to keep it. And I it's, mean, if, if, if it was a girl, sure, yeah, yeah. drown it in the yeah, yeah, But no, if it's a boy, it's a boy that, that's put a football helmet on that thing and, and, and get some money out of this, you know? But uh, it's, yeah, it's strange. And, but yeah, his performance at the very end is so good. It really is. That, that close-up on his face where he decides he's going to try yeah. to save it, even though it's futile at this point. He's surrounded by, there's, you know, 100 Blues Brothers cops. Yeah. <laughs> they're oh, useless, man, but, but they're everywhere. You can't get away from them. And he's like, those, he's crying. Like, those, he's talking to it, like trying to calm it down. And those are real tears coming out of his face. Like, you, like... <laughs> Like, I don't think, like, the, the, the way in which the tears were coming out, there's no way there were eye drops or anything. You know, like, he, that actor really invested in this film. And you could tell, which is, like, why Jonathan and I are so impressed with this guy and why we think, you know, he tragically was taken from us a little too early because he, his performance is really good. And especially in that scene um, where he decides to save the baby. And but, it's helped. Um, I don't think we've talked about this yet, but... That scene and all the scenes are helped by the amazing score for the movie, which was done by Bernard Herrmann. Oh, wow. Who, you yeah. know, even when this movie was made, was famous and legendary throughout Hollywood. So many scores to so many fantastic movies. Yes. Um, and I don't know the story of how it was that they, they talked him into 
to doing the score for this movie. Uh, I, I don't know. Which I think was sort of beneath his um, status yeah, it felt, at the moment. But it is just so fantastic. The score, it's, 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 got, like, it's, it's got that old sort of classic Hollywood um, sound to it. Um, it really, like, almost like an epic, you know, like uh, a Ben-Hur, like. Yeah, just all those big, big brass instruments epic, coming in with yeah, those yeah. hard uh, Hard punches. drums, yeah, yeah, it's, it's really good. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's strange that they got him for this film, uh, because he is so, like, he had done a lot of work before this one, um, and it's so, like, an epic Hollywood sound. It, it's incredible. Uh, I the the music is is fantastic in this film. Um, let's see what what else he has done. And the last time I checked, you cannot get that score in any digital version. Oh it's man, impossible to get online. He did unless you want to buy a CD. But yeah, what, who, what kind of an animal would he do did? That? Freaking Taxi Driver. You know, uh, he did Citizen Kane. He did Vertigo. He did The Day the Earth Stood Still. Uh. He he did Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the Tarantino movie that just came out. So he's still going strong. Like and, and man, he he's got quite a list here, filmography for soundtracks on. Maybe Larry Cohen got him drunk and just had the paper signed. I don't know. I don't know. We we don't know. But I mean, he did he did Death Proof. Uh, he did The Sopranos. I think that might, I think they just used some of his previous. Possibly. Oh yeah, because it said okay. So that's what it looks like. It's Tarantino uses his scores from other films yeah. in his. So like in Kill Bill as well, yeah. as, as well as Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And uh, he's got a, a, a tag for Charlie's Angels. <laughs> oh, so he, wait, he died in 75? He died in 75, so he, yeah. he died the year after? The year after this film was made, yeah. I wonder if this is his last one. That's a good question. I wonder if it was too, because... I mean, it's it, he's he's credited in all these films after '75, like Contact, Seinfeld, Kingpin, uh, uh, Twelve Monkeys. It takes two, you know, like people borrowed from him a lot. Yeah, apparently, go, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Going on 30, 40 years, they're still using his stuff. Yeah, I mean, what a fantastic composer, and and the music in this film is is top notch. It really is. It makes the movie, especially the end. The end and, yeah, it, the, it makes the end and also uh, the beginning with that fantastic opening scene that's just flashlights in the dark. Yeah, which, uh, which and uh, dude, I, I, this is just me probably overthinking. I, I tend to, to overanalyze everything in movies. It looks like sperm under a microscope with the flashlights waving around at the beginning. But they bring that back in the end um, with the cops in the uh, sewer with the flashlights and the um, and the sirens, the the red light uh, just flashing, flashing like a strobe. It, but if, it's really well done. Yeah. And if you just want a taste of the score and the um, and the sort of overall atmosphere, you can just watch that opening with the flashlights. And it's just it sets such a such a terrific mood. Yeah, you'll get the mood. You'll get the mood from the score alone, let alone. And it's so with, simple. I mean, yeah. there's no CGI. There's no, it's no, just, it's like he had like 20 people in a dark room. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's what it was. Slowly turn on their flashlights and start waving around. Like it's, but it's effective. It's effective. I don't think Larry Cohen, I mean, the director and writer of this, I don't think he, I don't think he got enough or gets enough credit now for the movies that he did. It just seems like so many of them got kind of forgotten. Yeah, they have. Cause he did the stuff too, didn't he? Yeah. Which I is think so. fantastic. I mean, it's got, uh, 
Oh, the guy from Law and Order, Michael. I have no idea. I can't remember. Let's look. Um... He did the stuff. I'm pretty sure he did. Um, he did cellular. Um, he did. Oh, did you know that they remade this? I heard it, and I never looked it up to watch it because I just thought it was one of those movies that does not need to be remade. Yeah, it's a 2009 remake. Mm. Uh, the poster looks creepy as crap, but um, uh, yeah, and there's also a sequel to this movie, which is oh yes, we can we can get which into we'll those. get into uh, it later. lives again. Yeah, it's and. So, so let's just go ahead and tell the ending. Um, so he comes out of the sewer with the baby and the cops have him surrounded and they're like, we're going to kill it. And either you drop it and we kill it or we just you, start shooting. We just start shooting and, and you're basically collateral. Um, so you see him struggling mentally with it. You see his wife like knowing exactly what he's about to do. And he has the baby wrapped up in a blanket because one of the things that monster babies do not like is flashlights and noise. Yeah, everybody knows that. I and mean, <laughs> that's, that's unwritten. Like, that's high school biology. Yeah, yeah. Um, no. And of course, there's flashlights and noise everywhere. So he has the baby, which is wounded, wrapped up in a blanket. He's trying to, he's telling them it's, it's wounded. You don't need to kill it. I understand that it's going to have to be locked away. I'll give it to yeah, you. Like yeah, we can, you know, we'll, we'll lock it away, but you don't need to kill it. Um, and of course the cops are having none of it and the father obviously seeing no way out, uh, throws the baby at the, uh, pharmaceutical guy who's sort of the, the worst of the worst in this movie. Yeah. He's the, he's the guy that, uh, uh that says, uh, we got to kill it. Well, no way we need it alive so we can study it basically. <laughs> and then as the baby is trying to, you know, rip his face off. Uh, all the cops shoot both the baby and the... 40 times. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're... They finally, they finally get to use those guns. They put 40 rounds in this thing. The, the you Blues know? Brothers cops just, just, just unload. All of all and the rounds. don't hit anyone that is standing behind <laughs> the, the pharmaceutical guy that's getting shot with the baby. I, that is spectacular aim, you know. But, but yeah, so they decide to... Uh, sacrifice the baby basically and it ends up killing the evil pharmaceutical guy in the end anyway so it, it's not a happy ending but it's that part the the evil the the pharmaceutical uh chump is dead that's cool but then this is where it gets really interesting um they're in the back of a cop car and one of the cops gets a phone call and i thought okay so here's what's probably going to happen is the companies are going to be like, well, we have to kill the parents because they'll just have another monster baby. And I thought that's what was about to happen. They were going to just, just drive off the parents and probably kill them. But the cop hangs up and goes, there's been another one born in Seattle. <laughs> and then they just drive off. Yep. And then Roll you credits. get the absolute Cue like, the theme music. best just moody score from from Herman that just really puts the cherry on top of the film. Cause you're like, Oh my God. So it's, it's happening everywhere, you know? And it's because everyone's jacked up on pharmaceuticals, you know, and it's or just, just pollution in general or pollution. Yeah. Because uh, let's face it back then it had already started to get really bad. I think in the sequels, um, they lean a little bit more on pollution and just environmental yeah. degradation overall as an explanation, because in the first sequel, um, the the father from the first one is now an advocate for for these monster babies and the parents that have them and mm -hmm. 
is basically part of this underground network that tries to identify who might be about to have one because the government's doing the same thing. Identify who might be about to have one, and then he tries to whisk them away to a safe place where the, the babies can be sort of contained and studied without being uh, mistreated or, uh, or killed. And you can imagine how well that works out. Uh, but but that, that's another podcast. Yeah, so. it, it Lives Again is what it's called, and it was released in 1978. And yeah, John P. Ryan plays Frank again. Um, John P. Ryan passed, and okay, so yeah, we were going to look this up. Uh, he died in 2007 from a helicopter accident. So yeah, he was around uh, when this stuff started to pick up and he was around for the sequels. And there looks like there's another one. Island of the Alive. Yeah, it's a... <laughs> and the, yes, I've seen them all. The, po- them all. the poster is the baby carriage from the first one. On a tropical island. On a tropical <laughs> island beach. like Baby monsters. On a, on a secluded island, which would have been, you would think, the perfect place for them to be left alone. That's and like a Jurassic Park feel. It really yeah, is. Yeah. And, then, and they create their own little baby monster civilization. But of course, they're not left alone. People go to the island. and Yeah, and it kind of goes back to, we're obsessed with knowing about these terrible things. Like, the reason that the the nurses were dis- or or the, the reporters were disguised as nurses so that they could get all this information to release to the press because everyone was obsessed with this monster and who made it and it's it's that way with the the island of the dead of course you can't keep people away from it because we're <laughs> I, I don't know and that's kind of like a theme in a lot of horror movies is our our inability to leave well enough alone yeah and and our kind of like our obsession with discuss like i'm not discussing things just like why people are so into uh serial killers and true crime i'm one i'm one of those people i used to badmouth them but now i'm i'm hooked and why voyeurism is such a thing it's it's you know humans might inherently be evil but evil does and i've heard this before too evil doesn't actually exist evil is what you make it you know stephen king talks about you know we're talking about dance macabre yeah. here his his nonfiction thing but i think mm. he gets into that a little bit and and the sort of justification for horror or, or how it works being that it's it's a rehearsal Yes. For us. I mean, yeah, that is know, in the, yeah, that is in the book. I, I yeah. hate to get sort of super dark, but the one thing we all know is going to happen to us is that eventually our lives are going to end. We're going to die. Yeah. We're going to die. It's just, it's, it's part Taxes of Taxes and death. <laughs> that's one of the, two. one of the anti-natalism arguments yeah. is like, you're just, why would you create a conscious being that's going to die? That's, that's yeah. cruel. Yeah. Um, but in that book, he argues that, that, that horror stories and movies and all that, you know, they're, they're a rehearsal. It's a, it's a safe way to face that mortal fear. Yeah, kind of like rehearsing it. Yeah, yeah, Re- reliving it uh, in your own head to where you're almost not as afraid to die. But, but but that's interesting because horror movies make me so much more terrified of death. <laughs> than, Do you think? Well, I don't know. I guess I, my my thoughts have changed since I you know was younger, and and I don't necessarily believe in an afterlife anymore. But I know that I don't want to be stabbed in the back 30 times by a dude in a ghost mask you know like i think that that's good self-knowledge yeah that's good to know (laughs) i I wonder about it um my wife asked me she's always questioning like whether basically whether horror movies are good for me being somebody who has always had like a really high level of anxiety yeah 
and I'm now medicated for it. Yeah, that's like my mother's whole thing with it. It's like, why are you so into horror, Levi? But I think you know? it. But I, I think that. I mean, I respect the argument, and and I know people make it because they care about you. But I think they're getting the chicken and the egg backwards. Yes, I uh, think. I think a lot of us who are prone to anxiety, mm-hmm. who have that kind of, um constant relationship with fear in some sort of Mm -hmm. medium grade right for some reason um i wouldn't call them relaxing horror movies but they it gives us and it's like why i believe we're in the second golden age of horror um and the first golden age being the 70s and 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 uh late 60s early or or vietnam and and nixon uh because when the world around you is terrifying Horror doesn't seem as bad. <laughs> um, and, you know, with, and, and right now with, with what's going on in, in this country, and we're going to try to not get so political on this, on this podcast, uh, but we are going to talk about social issues and how they relate to horror films, so it's going to be... And I don't, I don't think it's political to say that right now the modern world um, is more of a garbage fire than it's ever been in our lifetime. Yeah, I that's mean, not political, right? No, I don't think so. I mean, we no. That's the some people might take that politically, you know. Uh, but but we, yeah, it's it's some it's kind of like a coping mechanism for people. I feel like horror films are, and that's when the best horror films are made, or when real shit is going down. Um, uh, and, and and it's also, I think, that just real life. Yeah, real life is so much more terrifying. I mean, what would yeah. you what would you rather face? Uh, a small Let's say 10 zombies are chasing you yeah. through downtown Fayetteville yeah. or your student loans. Uh, 10 zombies. I'm taking the zombies. Yeah, yeah. I would That's take, a solvable problem. Yeah, yeah. My and student I, loans, on the other hand. Yeah, and I would take Jaws over uh, cancer, you know, like, oh, sure. <laughs> and the medical bills that come along with it. You the, know, yeah, so. because, you know, no matter what happens in a horror movie, it's an hour and a half long. Yeah. Like the evil... It ends. Yeah, yeah it ends. And it, like that fear that you feel ends, mm-hmm. whereas anxiousness and fear in you know the world we live in now i think the reason so many of us are (laughs) so medicated or struggling is that um it doesn't end and so many of the problems that we have whether or not they are actually unfixable or insurmountable they sure as hell feel that way yeah and you know having a baby is a scary thing holy shit man you Um, have no idea it financially mentally physically um and yeah, I have no clue. Jonathan does. Uh, I have no idea. But I know that it's terrifying. And this film brings another level of that. You know, what if I have a baby that I don't love? One or- of the things that, um, and again, I don't want to get political or religious uh, too much, but one of the things that cemented my, my personal atheism more than anything else mm-hmm. was when they let us leave the hospital with that baby, our first yeah. child. Yeah, I was yeah. like, okay. Yeah. Nobody's minding the light at the nope. end of the tunnel. Nope. This is completely random. They're going to let us walk out of here. Yeah. They're going to let me yeah. walk out of here mm-hmm. with this tiny, helpless soul. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was, that, that's. And, and you, I'm 100% responsible for what happens to this. Uh-huh. To, to and this not just child. that, but you're, you're 100% responsible for what happens to the child in an environment where at best you have 2% control at any given time. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And then. <laughs> And this is like something my mother was obsessed with. However, the child acts or reacts to certain things reflects on you. You know, uh, mom, mom was like, I don't care what people think, but I care what they think about you. You know, <laughs> so it's just like it's 
there's so much anxiety that comes with being a parent. This film touches on a lot of them. Yes, in a very, of course, over the top um, way. But yeah, for I mean, for the kind of movie it is, so well done. Yeah, and for the lower the lower end rating it has on IMDb, I expected that, it to be way worse. Dude, that that rating is an excuse. It's trash. Yeah, uh, just y'all look at the viewer ratings. The critic ratings on films this old are never that well done. Siskel, anyway. um, he hated everything. Yeah, well, yeah, but but he gave it like a, a really low one. I think he's the one who called it like just a low rent Rosemary's Baby or something. Yeah, like it's that. a a shtick. But it's completely yeah. different than Rosemary's Baby. I mean, the, yeah. there's nothing. There's no cult. There's no, the neighbors aren't eager to raise it as well. You know, it's, it's, and not to get, cause we're going to talk about Polanski and, and his, and his films later in a later Hopefully episode. Hopefully not his personal life. But yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll probably bring that up, but Rosemary's Baby was part of his like horror trilogy with the horrors of living in a big city and people like trying to get into your personal life, you know, um, which this has nothing. This has nothing to do with that. So I don't see how he compared Rosemary's Baby to this. But other than the fact that the baby is a is a spawn of Satan, you know, people did a lot of drugs in the seventies. Movie reviewers too. Oh yeah, absolutely. So um, I think that's good. Yeah, you think? Uh, yeah. Um, we we have no idea what the next topic is going to be about. Uh, or when it will be released, uh, but we we are working towards multiple episodes. And I think we're shooting for like once a week. Yeah, we'll absolutely shoot for that. Um, and you know, as life goes on, we'll see what happens. Uh, we're gonna try to do once a week, and it is gonna be horror centered the entire time. Um, so if you're not into horror, uh, find a podcast about gardens. NPR has many, many yeah, lovely yeah, yeah. podcasts that aren't that aren't horror related. Yeah. So there's always Joe Rogan, although I, I doubt he needs the extra listeners. No, he doesn't. <laughs> anyway, send us, um, send us your feedback. Yes. Send us your thoughts. Send us yes. your movie suggestions, your book suggestions, artwork, uh, suggestions. Um, We're going to cover some, some horror art as I'm, well. I'm sure there are horror nerds out there who are even, uh, bigger nerds than we are. So if we get something wrong, please, please do tell us, please tell us also, we'll correct uh, it. Any horror comics you're into? I know Joe Hill, uh, the the son of Stephen King, is, is has his own comic book company right now with DC called uh, Hill House Comics. So if anyone I haven't uh, read those, yeah, they're really good. I've um, read his short stories. Oh yeah, no, co- we'll, his first collection, twenty. Man, Century we might just Ghost, do a whole episode on so on just Joe Hill. Um, but yeah, if you have any uh, like horror comic, like like the Creepies that they used to release, uh, the Tales from the Crypt or whatever, send them to us. We will gladly cover those. Until then, this has been the first episode of the Well-Adjusted Podcast. Thank you. Ah!